So I was just talking with a friend in the break, and they said, not much matter happening for me today. Heart closed. I imagine that was true for a lot of people. Just because we decide to do a loving-kindness practice does not mean the heart turns on at the flick of a switch, right? In the same way that when someone's in front of us and the appropriate response would be care and kindness, not necessarily available. How many times have you been you know, in a situation where you know the appropriate response is kindness or care, but you're just a bit numb or a bit frozen or you're indifferent or you're just contracted for some reason or you have a judgment or you're afraid of the pain or that someone might be in. I was going to show a video tonight. Um, my partner showed me this YouTube video about kittens. <laughs> I think there's a whole subculture of YouTube and cat videos. I'm not privy to, but anyhow, I occasionally get uh, a glimpse. And this was a very dear video of, um, it was a perfect meta loving kindness video. There was this um, feral cat that got taken in. Most feral cats, uh, 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 what's the word? Exterminated, killed because um, they're you know, uh, hard to um, domesticate. And so they, but one, this feral cat had been taken in and was very um, fearful and, and, and somewhat antagonistic to, to people, but had sort of, after a few months, had sort of mellowed out a little bit, uh, but still very fearful and, and cautious around humans. And then they brought in two very young uh, feral kittens, um, and and so the video was was seeing these two teeny little kittens crawl all over this uh, adult kitten, uh, adult cat, who was normally very aggressive and hostile, and was a little not that wild about these little kittens crawling all over her. And then as the time goes on, they're all just in this big snuggle cuddle pile and just it's just oozing love and the and the, the older feral cats just in this sort of sweet beatific smile of sweetness. So yay, those cat videos <laughs> melt the heart. And it just reminded me of, you know, it's like, oh, I know, that, I know that quality, that, that feral nature that we have <laughs> that's guarded, suspicious, cautious, fearful, withdrawn, quick to strike. And always good to ask, you know, what, it, what, is, what is it that softens that feral nature? What softens that knee-jerk contraction or fear or reactivity? 
So I've been reflecting about this, this um, idea of, um, in the same way that much of practice is, is, is like farming, you know, we're, we're sowing seeds, we're, we're cultivating the soil, we're creating the optimal conditions for living well. Yeah, we're cultivating qualities and skills and tools and practices that when we're in the midst of our lives and relationships and difficulty and loss and struggle, that we have more resilience, we have more capacity to cope, to meet those experiences with an open heart. I came across recently this reading from Thomas Merton, and I think of Merton, who is this beautiful monastic and mystic um, as someone who's really cultivated uh, the soil of his heart and he says um, in in some moment of epiphany he says as he was walking around uh, I think somewhere in the town of I think he was in North Carolina then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach, the core of their reality, the person that each one is in their essence. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more wars or hatred or cruelty or greed. I suppose the big problem would be, would be that we'd fall down and worship each other. Right? When the hearts open... When when our heart's inclining towards goodness, towards love, what do we see? We see beauty. We see love. We see preciousness. We see holiness. We see the goodness in others. The state of our own mind and heart partly determines what we see and perceive. If our heart is cultivated with kindness and love, that's partly the lens that we're looking through. Perhaps more forgiving, more kind, more friendly. So I wanted to talk a little about the the journey of the heart, and particularly the journey of working with the practice of loving kindness and what's known as metta, M-E-T-T-A, friendliness, friendship. And where we start from and what arises and what we struggle with in the midst of that and what the fruits are of that. So I was teaching a retreat recently and um, there was a very brilliant young woman on the retreat, uh, very gifted and also a very, very strong mind, a brilliant mind, but also a challenging mind, and a tremendous amount of self-judgment. Kind of reminded me a little bit of myself. She was in late teens. I, was, I started my meditation practice in my late teens. Also had a very wicked, judging mind. And it was so clear to me when seeing sort of a reflection of my own younger self, um, how painful that is to uh, be so harsh and cruel to ourselves, 
Right? And it's often the place that we start. And it was really what prompted me to start practicing back in the 80s was uh, I was miserable because I listened to my inner critic a lot. I, ended up, I wrote a book recently about the critic, partly, you know, but it's what really inspired me to find a way out from self-created misery. I didn't really know that it was self-created. I thought the problem was out there with the world and governments and politics. And, right? It's only with meditation that you know, we turn that lens of awareness inwards and we see, oh, I'm creating so much of my own sorrow, my own struggle, my own suffering. And hopefully over time what arises is some understanding, right, through cultivating awareness, self-awareness. We see the ways that we are so unnecessarily and unfairly hard on ourselves. Is anybody here not hard on themselves? Anybody here not give themselves a hard time, having possibly high standards, push themselves, unforgiving for our foibles and faults? So this retreat I'm going to teach to, uh, tomorrow, um, I was teaching this retreat some years ago, and uh, this young woman came in, a uh, farmer from New England, and um, she was so. The, the, one of the interesting things about doing a loving kindness retreat is, um, it's it's hard work. <laughs> it's built as this retreat on love and kindness and. You know, extending, radiating goodwill to all beings everywhere, and it sounds fabulous. <laughs> it sounds like just what I want to do. <laughs> Bathe in loving kindness. Yeah? But those of you who've, how many people have done loving kindness retreats? Just raise your hand, a few of you. Yeah. So those of you who know, it's, it's, um, it's not exactly quite like the press release. <laughs> There's that one word that we overlook, which is, and we'll also explore the obstacles to the heart, <laughs> which becomes like 90% of the work. Looking at what gets in the way of our hearts abiding in kindness, abiding in warmth and friendliness. And as we turn that lens of attention very uh, tightly on our hearts, we see there's a lot gets in the way. And that's what this woman was discovering, that she was not able to access a quality of love, particularly for herself. She was very shut down to herself. And when she felt into her heart, what she felt was a hard nut. She said like a walnut, just hard, tight, closed, cold. Anybody feel that at times? The heart is just shut with hurt, or with anger, or with hatred, or fear. So I said, okay, well this is where we are, so we all start somewhere. So how about you just get curious about the heart, about this nut in the heart, and, and also bring some friendliness to that. 
Usually when an obstacle comes up in our practice, we think, oh, well, if I only get rid of this, then I'd be happy and loving, right? If only this nut would go away, I'd be radiating kindness, right? As opposed to realizing the gift in the, in the closed and the, and the nut for her was the doorway to opening, the doorway to softening, the doorway to gentleness, the doorway to kindness and forgiveness, the doorway to learning how to hold oneself gently. And so, so the, the, her homework was to just be with that closed-heartedness and the, and the nut. And, and over the days, she said that the, the numbness started to thaw and some tears started to flow. And the, she felt like the tears were like rain, raining on the, the, the nut that was in her heart. And, over, and then towards the end of the retreat, she said the, the, heart start, the, the nut started to open like seeds do. And out of that came a tender shoot. Possibility. Of openness. Right? She glimpsed some sense of possibility of being kind to herself, which is pretty radical. If that's if that's been inaccessible, and that was certainly the case for me, I felt like there was a iceberg in my own heart, frozen, numb, shut down, fearful, contracted, and was not easy to sit with. And not easy to be uh, asked to do this practice of loving kindness and yet not feel anything except kind of flatness and just sort of empty words. But I was encouraged, just, just keep doing it as we are, as you might often hear, just put yourself on the meditation cushion and just do the practice. Just let the practice take care of itself. You just show up every day, just keep doing your work being aware, cultivating the heart. And over time, it starts to do its work. It's something starts to go in. Something, something counteracts all the negative messages that we're giving ourselves from our judging mind, from our critic, from whatever distorted views we have, negative views we have about ourselves. So we start where we are. And so the question for you is, where are you starting from? I'm not saying that you're just starting out, but where are you starting from? We're always starting out. Right? We're starting out in this moment, this day, this, this meditation. Right? Where are you starting out from in terms of your own relationship to your heart, your own relationship to your capacity to care for yourself? for each other. And each of us, of course, starts from a different place, depending on our conditioning, depending on our life experience. Some of us come to the practice and uh, our hearts are really shut down from trauma, from hurt, from who knows what. How do you meet that? How do you meet yourself in those tender, vulnerable, hurt places? And what we tend to do is wall over them and then move through life a little numb, a little frozen. 
And one of the reasons why um, metta is considered a purification practice is that it invites us to meet what's there. What, what gets kicked up, what obstacle surfaces. So I want to share something. This is a story that Jack sometimes shares, so some of you might be familiar with this. It's from one of his books. I think his laundry book. <clears throat> After describing years of abuse and violation from her family, Bennett goes on, the most devastating words my mother ever spoke to me came when I asked her if she loved me. I had just been escorted home by the police after one of my many attempts to run away. So it was bad, it was bad timing on my part. She answered, how could anyone ever love you? It took me almost 50 years to heal the damage from all her ugly remarks. Recently, I remembered a childhood ritual of mine that helped me survive. From the age of five or six until I was well into my teens, whenever I had trouble sleeping, I would slip out from under the covers and steal into the kitchen for a bit of bread or cheese, which I'd carry back to bed with me. There I'd pretend my hands belonged to someone else, a comforting, reassuring being without a name, an angel perhaps. The right hand would feed me little bits of cheese or bread as the left hand stroked my cheeks and hair. My eyes closed, I would softly whisper to myself, there, there, go to sleep, you're safe now, everything will be all right, I love you. This is meeting ourselves in the very raw, tender place. And this is what she's doing at five or six, but we could be doing this at 50 or 60, because those raw, tender places don't necessarily go away. They linger in us. Those younger structures live within us and are asking to be met with love, asking to be met with tenderness, asking to be met with kindness. This is very humbling work to turn towards those tender places with love. And we all have our own version of that. And so this is what the, the practice of love is asking us to do. Because of course how we turn towards this one is how we turn towards these ones. Same, same. And the more that we can meet whatever's here, the beauty and the sorrow and the trauma and the tragedy of life, of course, the more that we're going to have capacity to meet that in others. It's very simple, but very hard, and also very slow. Have you noticed how slow practice is? <laughs> have you noticed how slowly we change, how slowly we grow? Right? It's an it's a, it's a incremental practice. Occasionally we have a huge breakthrough, we have a huge opening to loving ourselves, to understanding the nature of reality, to understanding our place in the web of life, or whatever the breakthrough is. And then it takes us maybe 
who knows, five, ten, twenty years to integrate that understanding. Slow practice is a wonderful phrase from a great Korean master called Chunul. He said, um, talked about the path as sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. So I remember being on a long retreat and waking up to some very painful early trauma that I'd experienced um, that was partly probably the seed of some of the self-judgment and self-hatred. And um, it took me years to really understand how to hold that painful part of myself. And still work at times the vulnerable, deficient, empty, lonely places within. So one of the things that you might find if you take the loving-kindness on as a practice or do a retreat is that um, it's not as easy as it sounds. But it's also doable. You don't want to paint a grim picture of this as impossible Herculean feat. But it's also to look at well, what what it, what closes the heart? What keeps us from from just abiding in this loving present state? You know, we come into this world and our hearts are pretty open. Right? You'd be around a young infant, and aside from when they're needing, you know, some physical need. There's a lot of sweetness, there's a lot of love, there's a lot of innocence and vulnerability and beauty. So one of the things the Buddha was pointing to with this quality is this capacity for the heart to be boundless. It's possible for a heart to be unconditionally loving. We've touched that, we feel that, we've known that at times in ourselves or we've received that from loved ones, from who knows where, from teachers, from parents at times. But when we look at our own capacity to love, we see that there's, there's often conditions on it. And this is one of the things we're learning to look at, not to judge those con- the, the, the limits, but just to see, oh, here's the, here's the boundary, here's the, the way that I extend some, but not so much. Or extend some, but it has some strings to it. Maybe I extend my love to something that people I love and care for, but not if they're too difficult. Not if they want to control me. Not if they have different views from me. You know, this last six months has really been a great practice to great time to cultivate metta for people who have different views from you. Right? Since November 8th, or before, well, uh, the year before that. You know. How much do we extend our hearts to those from the other side of the political spectrum? Maybe some, maybe not. 
Do we extend our heart just to the blue parts of the map? Or maybe you extend it to the red part of the map. You know? You know, it's interesting, you know, this idea, you know, we're cultivating loving kindness to all beings. <laughs> and then you see the map, <laughs> the political map. Well, sort of, not in the middle there, you know, but... <laughs> or, where, you know, wherever it is that you're leaning politically. You know, sometimes our, our loving kindness has an agenda that I'll love you if you stop being a jerk. I'll love you if it makes you a better person so you're not so annoying to be around. I love you if you just shut up once in a while. I love you if you would vote with your brain and not with something else that you're voting with. Or whatever. I'll love you if you change. Right? How much of our love is like that? Some, sometimes. Oh, you know, the invitation to love those who've harmed us, to love those who, you know, who live within us as a, as a hardened place. And the Buddha gave this simile of the saw where he talks about even if people, even if bandits are cutting you limb from limb, you should still be extending loving kindness to them. It's a little extreme, but you get the, you get the point. <laughs> even if people are you know, threatening in some way, can you keep your heart open? Not so easy because uh, you know, we contract in fear. We contract in self-preservation. We tract in protecting ourselves from pain. The unfortunate thing about that is that contraction causes ourselves to suffer as much as perhaps the other person, perhaps even more than the other person, because we close ourselves up. One of the places that I'm particularly challenged by, since I'm, I'm a, um, my, my, most of my work is, is, is oriented around uh, in, engaging in a deeper relationship with the earth and so one of the hardest places for me is to extend my heart to people who are damaging the earth you know, to companies, executives people who are neglectful and uh, explicitly harming the soils, the oceans, the skies, the water it's very hard for me to hold those people in my heart because of the pain and suffering that's being caused as a result of their actions. Right? So you might think about, where is it that's, that, that your heart closes? Where is it? What, what, what sort of dominion of people are kind of banished from your heart? <coughs> or maybe particular personalities. Maybe you have a hard time at being around people who are bossy or needy or controlling or narcissistic or whatever other perfectly human trait. And we recoil from them, we contract. 
And to be curious, you know, what, what, what causes the heart to close down around those kinds of people? Should I be loving even if I can't stand being controlled and this person around me is controlling? Or self-centered? Or reflecting any of the other traits that I might have a little trace of myself? I just can't bear to accept that that might be part of me too. It's a wonderful practice they like called just like me. And whenever somebody is doing something obnoxious, you know, I don't know, whatever it is, whatever you got as whatever you regard as obnoxious, you know, taking too much time, being self being selfish, being petty, being rude, cutting in, in line or in traffic, and instead of going those people, God, those people, those Marin people, those city people, those whatever kind of people. We go, oh, just like me. I cut in line too, just like me. I get controlling, just like me. I get self-absorbed, just like me. I get reactive, just like me. I'm human, they're human, just like me. And it's a really great practice for undermining that sense of othering, Separating, judging, holier than thouing, that's a verb. And we see, oh, we're just in this together. We're struggling in this together. Maybe that person's cutting in line in front of me in traffic because they're on their way to see a person in the hospital who's really sick. Or they're having anxiety about being late for the getting to work on time. Or who knows what. So I noticed I was out hiking up in this wilderness area that I was um, leading this course in last week. And um, this is where I first came to fall in love with the wilderness in the States in the early 90s. I spent a lot of time up there. And um, it was my, f- and growing up in England where there's nothing poisonous, except maybe, you know, the government at times, you know. Um, and then being up in, and I was often alone up in this wilderness center, um, and I'd never been around bears, mountain lions, coyotes, bobcats, lynx, snakes, and all kinds of other things I was imagining was out there in the dark. And had a lot of fear. And I noticed it was really hard to keep my heart open when I was afraid. Just that, just that basic survival instinct, self-preservation. And I had a glimmer of that when I was hiking last week and I was convinced that there was a bear around. It was just you know, the beginning of bears coming out of hibernation in May, snow just melted. And my mind kept creating this story of being followed by a bear. Not that bears are that problematic to humans, but you know the mind can make a lot of it. And then I know, I know over time these days that you know when I because I've been in plenty of situations where there's you know bear around or cougar or whatever in the wild, and um, 
just learning to practice loving kindness. So I start to sing to myself. I start to sing this loving kindness chant. And it just kind of soothes the heart and softens the fear. And then it's sort of, okay, well, if I meet a bear, I'll meet a bear. So it's learning how to meet ourselves where we get contracted. And if we can meet ourselves, and that softens, then the heart can relax. We can open a little bit. And sometimes our heart closes just because it's the habit. We just get busy. We're wrapped up in ourselves and our work and making money and family and doing and doing and doing. And we, uh, it's almost like the, the, the space for the heart clouds over. And what I've appreciated about the loving-kindness practice, this intention, this leaning towards friendliness, is it makes that opening of the heart more likely. So what I like about using phrases, which is one way of cultivating metta, friendliness, this, this well-wishing, um, is in any moment you can just be sitting in a meeting, in traffic, in a room like this, on a bus, at work, looking out the window of a cafe, and you can just wish someone well. Like right now, let's just practice it in this room. Let's just wish someone well in here. You don't have to look at them. You don't have to, they don't have to know that you're wishing them well. Just wish them well. You can look around if you want. And notice what it does to your state of mind. You know, what's clear about our minds is two things can't exist at the same time. If we're feeling kind in any moment, there's no hatred or fear. If we're feeling warmth and friendliness, there's no deficiency, there's no problem. So we can radically change our mind state in any moment. We can change our state of heart in any moment by simply calling to mind the goodness of someone, of wishing someone well. And if we keep doing that, we, you know, we're sowing these seeds of, of establishing a heart that abides in friendliness, that abides in warmth, that abides in well-being. It sounds very simplistic, because it is. It doesn't take much to lean, to incline the heart towards friendliness. And we do this all the time in some ways. You know, we greet a stranger in the street, we hold a door open, we you know, consider it. And, and there's so many more moments in the day that we can, and we can practice cultivating warmth and friendliness. Maybe to our bodies. Next time you feel an ache or a pain or a flutter of anxiety or sadness. Oh, may I be okay? May I hold that with care? 
May I be at ease. May I be free from pain. Just a simple phrase. Not, God damn it, my knee's hurting again. Bloody hell, why didn't I go to the... That just cultivates animosity, resentment, judgment. So we can always ask that question, what am I cultivating in this moment? In this moment, as I'm sitting in traffic, fuming at all the people in front of me who are getting in my way, these people, why are they all leaving now, these people, you people? And then we look in the wing mirror of our car, rear view mirror, and we realize that we're traffic for all the people behind us. We're all in this together, driving crazily in our single person cars. So the meta practice, as you know, as we, well, we didn't do it in that way today, but the meta practice starts at home, starts with ourselves, starts with this fundamental relationship to our own being, to our bodies, to our hearts, to our minds, to our quirky personalities, to our foibles, to our insecurities. May I be happy. May I be safe. May I be healthy. May this body be healthy. May I live with ease. And over time, hopefully, that engenders a quality of uh, welcoming welcoming of ourselves, inviting ourselves to be as we are. Perhaps as we, as we grow the sense of appreciation for ourselves, we start taking better care of our body. We start to be aware of the toxicity we might be putting in there. Or we start being aware of how much we push ourselves, how much we drive our body, push through sleeplessness. Although we don't listen to our heart and its vulnerabilities and we push through and put ourselves in situations that are really uncomfortable. We go against our own better knowing and intuition. And as we cultivate more self-kindness, what arises out of that is, is, is more self-respect. Respect for the body, its needs, its limitations. I remember working with a student who was a sex worker. And, uh, and then just really interesting to watch as she uh, uh, went through the practice and deepened in her practice of both mindfulness and loving kindness. And at some point it became really clear to her that, that, that her, her work was intolerable. 
It was so dissonant to the idea of being kind to herself and to her body. Hopefully over time what arises is we become more patient with ourselves, more loving. This is a story about patience that I think is kind of humorously describes how this can arise as we as we begin to attune to our to our needs. It's called two more aisles. A man observes a woman in the grocery store with a three year old girl in her basket. As they pass the cookie section, the little girl asks for cookies and her mother tells her no. The little girl immediately begins to whine and fuss and the mother says quietly, Now, Monica, we just have half of the aisles left to go through. Don't be upset, it won't be long. Soon they come to the candy aisle and the little girl again begins to cry for candy and when told she couldn't have any, begins to wail. The mother says, There, there, Monica, don't cry. Only two more aisles to go, then we'll be checking out. When they get to the checkout stand... The little girl immediately begins to clamor for gum and bursts into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently says, Monica, we'll be through the checkout stand in five minutes, then you can go home and have a nice nap. The man follows them out to the parking lot and stops the woman to compliment her. I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother says, What do you mean my little girl's name's Tammy? I'm Monica. So we learn to be, hopefully, a little more patient, a little more soothing, a little more kind with our own travails and challenges. Sylvia has this phrase, she says, whenever she gets agitated, the the way her loving kindness expresses, expresses itself is she says to herself, oh, she says, oh, What's, what's the word? Oh, honey. Oh, some other word like that. Oh, honey, you're startled. Oh, honey, you're startled. It's a very sweet, affectionate, rather than like, oh, you shouldn't be, you should, you're, you're a Buddhist meditation teacher, you should be more equanimous and more together. Oh, honey, you're startled. Right? It's a very sweet, simple way of expressing, oh, oh yeah, this is hard. Well, let's take a moment. Let's take a breath. Compose yourself. How do we meet this moment? So for me, the the practices, as I've shared often before in this hall around the practice of mindful awareness and the practice of love, or the the qualities, are not different. Whether it's with mindfulness or with love, we're learning to meet this moment. We're learning to meet ourselves. We're learning to meet each other with a kind presence, with with a warm, compassionate awareness. And really, for me, this feels like the nub of experience. How are we meeting this moment? I don't care how enlightened your meditation was last night, blissing out into the cosmos. How are you meeting this moment of tiredness, of boredom, of restlessness, of sadness, of irritation, of whatever? So a friend of mine shared with me this practice. I think this came from her therapist. A therapist asked her 
to uh, instead of uh, should wake up in the morning and immediately there'd be a tirade of self-judgment. And so uh, her therapist, I think, gave us some practice. I forget exactly what it was, but just to sort of say, hello, good morning, rather than, God, you've slept in already, you've got these things to do, why didn't you take care of them yesterday? Hello, good morning. And so she would do that. At first she was resistant, I said, it's kind of stupid, hello, good morning. And at some point it became a little more authentic. And then later she added, good morning, I love you. Good morning, I love you. Looking in the mirror, good morning, I love you. As a way of expressing that kind-heartedness. So Sharon Salzberg shares the story of a friend of hers who was um, had been doing this loving kindness practice for about five years, and um, and he said to her one day, he said, "You know, I really struggle with this practice. It's like it's really hard. I get bored. It's restless, and you know, it's kind of difficult. You know, coming up with these phrases and wishing." You know, and and she said, well, okay. And she said, well, you, but are you noticing anything in you, any any kind of impact from the practice? She said, well, you know, my, my wife says I'm definitely easier to be around, and my kids like me a little more, and people at work definitely have noticed the difference that I'm, you know, kind of a little more patient and 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 caring. He said, but but is that enough? He kept looking to the his meditation practice as the reference point for his practice rather than actually the living expression of that in his life. Right? The point of all this stuff is not to be a fantastic meditator, although it's fine if that happens. But the point is that we learn how to translate it, how we, how we live it, how we meet whatever challenging moment that it is that we meet, which we will meet every day in our bodies, in our hearts, in our loved ones, watching the political madness. Since I'm flying very early tomorrow morning, I'm going to share my favorite airport story. It's not mine, it's from Palestinian poet Shihab Nai. And this is a lovely story of how the, heart ex- how the heart expresses itself in ordinary moments of kindness. She writes, Wandering round the Albuquerque airport terminal, which I just came from the other day, after learning my flight had been detained four hours, I heard an announcement. If anyone in the vicinity of gate 4A, under- 4A understands any Arabic, please come to the gate immediately. Well, one pauses these days, doesn't one? Gate 4A was my own gate. I went there. An older woman in full traditional Palestinian embroidered dress, just like my grandma wore, was crumpled to the floor and wailing loudly. Help, said the flight service person. Talk to her. What's her problem? We told her the flight was going to be late, and she did this. I stooped to put my arm around the woman and spoke to her haltingly in Arabic. The minute she heard any words she knew, however poorly used, she stopped crying. She thought the flight had been cancelled entirely. She needed to go to El Paso for an operation, for medical treatment the next day. 
And I said, you're fine, you'll get there. Who's picking you up? Let's call them. We called Hassan and I spoke with him in English. I told him I would stay with his mother till we got on the plane. And we'd ride next to her on Southwest. She talked to him. Then we called her other sons just for fun. Then we called my dad and he, she spoke for a while in Arabic and found out, of course, they had 10 shared friends. Then I thought, just for the heck of it, why not call some Palestinian poets I know and let them <laughs> chat with her? This all took about two hours. She was laughing a lot by then, telling us about her life, patting my knee, answering questions. She'd pulled a sack of homemade mamul cookies, little powdery sugar, crumbly mounds, stuffed with dates and nuts out of a bag, and was offering them to all the women at the gate. To my amazement, not a single woman declined one. It was like a sacrament. The traveler from Argentina, the mum from California, we were all covered with the same powdered sugar and smiling. There is no better cookie. And I noticed now my new best friend, by now we were holding hands, had a potted plant poking out of her bag, some medicinal thing with green furry leaves. Such an old traveling tradition, always carry a plant, always stay rooted to somewhere. And I looked around that gate of late and weary ones and thought, this is the world I want to live in, the shared world. Not a single person in this gate, once the crying of confusion stopped, seemed apprehensive about any other person. They took the cookies. I wanted to hug all those other women too. This can still happen anywhere. Not everything is lost. So interesting what arises out of a moment of kindness and a moment of care, a moment of responsiveness. Right? The, 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 this practice is cultivating, is, is in, inviting us to move through life with a responsiveness. Rather than the reactivity, rather than the fear, rather than the contraction, rather than judgment, can we respond with care? Can we respond with a friendly attitude? And of course, as we live with ourselves, right, we have infinite amount of moments to respond to care with, with ourselves, particularly. I, would, I generally tend to think that you're all very caring, considerate people, for the most part. You know, we have your moments, and we all have our times when we get you know, contracted or whatever. But for the most part, we're caring people. But I would imagine that you're much less caring with yourselves, for the most part. I could be off on that, but from my experience of working with people over many years now in many countries, that we forget to extend it here. We forget that this is part of nature as anything else is part of nature. So as you're going about your day, your week, just noticing how you're holding whatever difficulty or pain or sadness or insecurity or longing or loneliness. And I think one of the beautiful things that arises out of when we cultivate the heart is we also see that it's a wisdom practice. You know, we tend to... in tend to sort of divide mind, heart, wisdom, love. We tend to think of them as 
separate things, but they're really one of the, they just weave a, the same fabric. Right? When, we, when, our, when the heart is more pervasive, when our heart's open, we see that sense of connection. We see the non-separation. We see that we're not that different. We see there's a common unity. We see the commonality in suffering and the commonality of love. And so maybe as you leave this evening to reflect around in what ways In what ways can I can my heart incline the words aren't coming but I can feel it but I can't get the words out. So how how do I incline towards being more unconditional in my loving in this moment? What would it be to be more unconditional as you go home to your children, to your spouse, to your roommate, to your cat? You may make it onto YouTube one day. This is from Rilke, who says, For one human being to love another, that is perhaps the most difficult of our tasks. The ultimate, the last test and proof, the work for which all other work is but preparation. And it's such a difficult task because it asks that we find that capacity to love unconditionally, to accept unconditionally. It doesn't mean to say that we don't pay attention and have healthy boundaries and listen to what's uh, unskillful, but that we find some capacity in our hearts to love beyond our own petty needs or uh, wants. So I'll close with a story from uh, the poet Hafez, where he's in his... um, uh, well, wherever he is, I don't know where he is, but he's anyway, he's in his place of abiding. And a student comes in, and uh, so the story goes, uh, is, is uh, telling Hafiz about all of his spiritual uh, accomplishments that are happening in meditation, all of his illuminations about God, and, and Hafiz being a somewhat of a wise wisdom teacher, says, well, that's great, but uh, how many goats do you have? And the man says, goats? You're asking me about goats, and I'm telling you about my visions of God? He said, yeah, and uh, you take care of your parents, and how do you treat your staff? And he goes on to ask him a whole bunch of questions. And the man's a little confused, but he's listening. I responds in all the ways that he knows. And then, and then Hafiz says, you ask me if your visions of God are true, and I say they are if they make you more kind and more caring to every person 
every being that you meet. That the proof of our practice is in the way that we live with ourselves, with each other, with the world. So let's just take a moment to close. Let's close your eyes. You don't need to move your posture, but just sense your heart. And just sensing, expressing an intention to meet whatever rises with a kind and loving heart. All right, folks, thank you for your attention. Have a nice night. See you soon. I think I'm back in June sometime. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.